This is the Land Legacy Podcast, brought to you by Whitetail Properties Real Estate. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your weekly resource for habitat management, wildlife management, and recreational real estate. We hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, welcome back, guys. I'm excited for this podcast. This is going to be a good one. You know, a long time coming. Um, we've had one of these guests on before, but it's been far too long. Uh, it was a great podcast. Shoot, it's been almost two years ago, I'd imagine, by now, at least a year and a half. Um, but we're going to cover a topic. We've kind of uh, gave anecdotal, we have gave opinions, and we've talked about it in the last couple months. But I'm looking forward to this one because we're going to dive into some research that's ongoing and discuss it and so without further ado i'm going to introduce our guest we have returning dr bronson strickland bronson how are you today i'm doing great thanks so much for the invite yeah great to great to have you back sorry it's been so long and we have i forget the title but you're going to have to share it with me but we have luke resop with us who's with mississippi state luke thanks for coming on very glad to be here, and I honestly don't even know what my title is. I kind of, I'm kind of all over the place. So, <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Um, PhD a, student. PhD That's the title student. Right now. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. What are you? Uh, you're working on your PhD currently at Mississippi State. That is correct. Correct. Awesome. Good deal. Bronson, I know most people by now that listen to Lana Legacy podcast are well aware of what you do, but in case they're new and have been and they haven't heard, why don't you give us a little background on what you do at Mississippi State? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm the Extension Wildlife Specialist, and what that essentially means is that I'm kind of in charge of for the MSU Deer Lab and, and other work as well, but. Uh, disseminating meaningful information to landowners, biologists, managers. And how it works here with us at the MSU Deer Lab is that uh, Steve takes the lead typically on our research projects. Um, So he's kind of the main one pushing the research, leading the research, and I assist him. But on the outreach side of it, which outreach being kind of what we're doing today, outreach is is a website, it's a podcast, it's a public seminar, etc. That is getting the information from the university to the people that can apply it. That's more of my job, and so I kind of take the lead with that. And so that that's just resulted in a really good synergy between he and I. We've been working together for 20 years now, and uh, that that's how it has worked so well, is that we have a lot in common. There's a lot of overlap, but we have different specialty areas, and uh, we capitalize on that. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. And it, that, that's pretty cool to see. You've been 20 years together um, down there. That, that says a lot, um, defining roles and, and having the ability to know each other's place and, and uh, really work well together. Yeah, Luke. it's worked well. It's actually almost, I was just doing the numbers in my head. We're, we're almost 25 years. Oh, so wow. Yeah, yeah. If, if we were married, you know, we'd get a what a silver plate or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. That's cool. Yeah. Um, Bronson, are you born and raised? Like, were you, I, I may ask you this before, but are you a true native Mississippi guy? I am not, although now I've spent about half my life here, but uh, I was born and raised in Georgia, 
okay. uh, at, at Athens, Georgia. So that's that's where I got my undergraduate degree was University of Georgia. Gotcha, gotcha. Still from the South. That's right. Yeah. All right, Luke. Um, introduce us to yourself and kind of uh, you know a little bit of background on you. Yeah. So I am originally a Pennsylvania boy. I'm from the mountains of PA and born and raised uh, in South Central Pennsylvania. Um, you know, very similar story to most of us that do this kind of stuff. Loved outdoors, but I took a little less usual route and didn't really start getting into deer hunting until I was 19, probably, when I started bow hunting. And, you know, I'd hunted a little bit before then, but that's really kind of my uh, freshman, sophomore year in undergrad which is when I was at Virginia Tech. After I left Pennsylvania, I went to Virginia Tech for a while and did my undergrad there. And that's when I really fell in love with um, wildlife, wildlife management, you know, killing things. So that kind of led me down the path that I'm on now. After I finished my undergrad at Virginia Tech, I came down here to Mississippi State where I did my master's under Dr. Damaris and Dr. Strickland. And one thing led to another, and here we are today. <laughs> very cool very cool now i this is uh this is a topic that's man it seems like with my job and working with landowners it seems like this this what what we're getting ready to uncover and unpack today and you guys are going to be doing it for next several years it, it sounds like this is a hot topic and uh i'm really looking forward to seeing this project um be completed but Oh, man, just even the, the 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 Facebook posts of what you're you know kind of the early on what you're finding or what you're noticing about this um, project is is just interesting as well to try to piece it all together and see because I think at the end of the day uh, for for everyone who's listening that all three of us on this podcast are hunters and we're we're land managers and we really want to just have the best experience possible when we're out there and mm-hmm. so it's great for me um working in the natural resource world assisting landowners to lean on and, and follow guys like bronson and, and luke who are researching this and finding finding the the true evidence of, of what's out there rather than just anecdotal um and so why don't you guys um bronson kind of talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that um unpack that a little bit with your guys's research and what you kind of um focus on over the course of the years at Mississippi State? Uh, well, I think what we're, we're going to be talking about today is, of course, a uh, research project that we recently launched, and Luke is the, the Ph.D. student for that project, but it's essentially a, uh, a comparison of regenerative agriculture techniques and there's, there's a lot of ways to say that as well. You know, there's a lot of different definitions. <clears throat> but essentially, regenerative agriculture techniques for wildlife food plots as compared to what we call conventional agriculture techniques. Conventional would be everything that you already know that you're already doing. Conventional means there's tillage. Typically, it means there's tillage. It means there's a herbicide application. It means there's the addition of fertilizers. Regenerative agriculture techniques would be just the opposite. You, you don't do any of that. 
And so really how this fits in is Mississippi State, just like at every state, has what we call a a land-grant university. And the role of the land-grant university is to take research that is going to be meaningful to our stakeholders, our taxpayers, our landowners, our farmers, producers, etc., is we do the research here, but once we publish the paper scientifically, we're not done yet. That's only half the job. The other half of the job is making sure that information gets to people so they can use it. And, and again, as I started with, that, that's my job specifically. So uh, years ago, I mean, it's been going on for a long time, but it, it really started catching my eye and my ears uh, probably about three years ago. Just started hearing more and more regenerative agriculture, wildlife management, food plots, etc. Started doing uh, as deep of a dive as I could invest my time hmm. into reading, consuming as much information as I possibly possibly could, and came to the conclusion that um, this is legitimate in mm-hmm. terms of there is sufficient evidence to warrant further examination in our time and for us to re- reach out and seek funding. Um, so there's a lot of stuff, of course, on YouTube, Internet, podcasts, and we just thought it was the, the time was, was right to, to critically evaluate that. Um, and again, that just falls right in with the land-grant mission of Here's a question. It's going to to influence landowners, hunters, managers. Let's critically evaluate it. Let's be very fair. Let's be very transparent. Let's do a comparison, and then let's let people know what we found. And probably the tipping point for me, and I think everybody that's been doing food plots at least for five years, is you've either had that year or you've had that field or that plot that's problematic. Where we are at, uh, our soils are, well, first of all, the topography is very flat. The soils are very clay and acidic. And tillage on the perfect year is just fine. But it got to be more often than not, the process of tillage was becoming problematic in terms of The field, the optimal time to till, the field is either too wet and we're literally getting a tractor stuck in the clay or it's too dry. And so setting the whole process back. Also working with other landowners when they're first trying to establish warm season food plots. When you go down further in the state and there's much more of a sand component in the soil, you better have some timely rainfall. When you make that big investment for 20 acres of soybean, you're hoping that you get timely rain. And I just started seeing that many, many times we were getting failures when the the landowner, the guy planting the food plots, they didn't do anything wrong. It's just the system they were using was not resilient to patterns of rainfall. So it kind of had those different things. I thought, you know, regenerative agriculture techniques uh, in terms of kind of planting into a mulch not just uh, tilling the soil, uh, from a very practical perspective for us, that could help us. That could help us get in the field when we want to get into the field, etc. So that personal experience along with what was bubbling up everywhere in uh, social media, popular articles, YouTube, etc., that's when we reached out. 
Uh, Luke was good enough. Of course, Luke got his master's degree here, so we're talking about this stuff all the time. And finally twisted his arm, and I had to twist both of them uh, to stay on for a Ph.D., and that, that was a topic that he was very curious about because he's out there planting those food plots, and uh, he was very interested in that. So, uh, so we're grateful for Luke, going to spend the next five to ten years with us. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and the people. Uh, that's a joke. Yeah, seven. Um, uh, but luckily, we were able to, to locate and get some state wildlife agencies as well as USDA's NRCS. They had faith and belief in the project that the question was warranted and deserved evaluation from a from a deer management perspective. So that's how we got started. Very cool. I think that you, you mentioned something early on that I think is the biggest struggle that myself included is is finding in the in just when you search regenerative agriculture there's my goodness there's facebook groups designated to this but the biggest thing i see is in in or the biggest problem i'm finding is sometimes that definition of regenerative is different for each person so would you care to really try to define that i know you did but really lay it out in black and white and in in this study in this research what is the regenerative food plotting techniques that you guys are focusing on? Okay, uh, I, I will reiterate reiterate exactly what you said. Uh, when you start looking through the literature and what's available, there's a lot of definitions. Yeah. Uh, from truly an agriculture perspective, some people will say organic. Uh, there will be also uh, a title called conservation agriculture which essentially means you're reducing. It doesn't mean always eliminating, but you're reducing inputs, you're reducing tillage, etc. Now, from the uh, what we consider the, the purest definition, and Luke and I are not experts. Again, we're, we're a year or two into exploring this, <laughs> but from what we gather, the, most, the purest definition would be there is no more tillage, so the soil is always covered 12 mm-hmm. months out of the year. There is no tillage. There is no application of herbicides, which can be problematic sometimes, or maybe mm-hmm. not. And there's no application of synthetic fertilizers. So you essentially, uh, essentially, Adam, you are restoring. Here's one thing you commonly hear from like Gay Brown. You turn dirt back into soil. And yeah. essentially what that means is you are restoring the function of the ecology and the biology of the soil, such that uh, the, the microbes, etc., are providing the nutrients needed by plants that we are, from a conventional standpoint, adding synthetically. So nothing's changing. The plants still need calcium and phosphorus and manganese, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but you're allow, allowing the soil ecology to provide those nutrients to plants rather than adding them. Very good. Yep. What Luke, are the, did I um, miss anything with that? Well, the the only no, that, those are certainly the big points. The only uh, things I would add there to kind of what um, you know makes regenerative, you know, uh, what makes our regenerative approach regenerative is 
So you touched on minimizing tillage and keeping the soil covered with a thatch or mulch layer, 365 or as much as possible. And part of that is keeping living roots in the ground, 365 or as close to it as possible. It's not just having a dead mulch on the ground, it's having a living mulch on the ground. And then you touched on minimizing or eliminating, in a lot of cases, inputs of synthetic uh, fertilizer and herbicides. The other big one is diverse species blends. And so, you know, from a conventional approach, we're often planting crimson clover and wheat, or maybe two clovers and a wheat. Or if it's a warm season plot, it's, you know, cowpea and sunflower, something like that. But our regenerative treatments include a diverse suite of species, you know, 10, 15. Like our current warm season mix has 19 different species in it. Whereas our convention for regenerative, our conventional mix only has two species. So, um, I think that's just the only other big thing that I would add there. Yeah, that was, that was my next question is talking about the different blends and kind of the laying it out. So mm-hmm. trying to, when we have identified regenerative defining it for you guys um, project, talk to me a little bit about this project specifically, what's the time frame, and what are the. What are the things that we're working through and testing? So the, um, like Dr. Strickland said, you know, this will be a 10-year project. And over the next 10 years, no, it's not going to be 10. We're going to be, um, <laughs> I will be uh, doing these field experiments over the next three or four years. So we just started our first planting season of the entire project. The first round of seed went into the ground this spring, so, you know, three months ago. And we will plant warm and cool season food plots on all of our study sites, and I'll kind of get more into that in a minute. But we'll be planting warm and cool season food plots on all of our study sites for at least the next three full years, if not the next four years. So, um, thinking about, you know, where our study sites are. We've got five study sites in Mississippi. We've got a couple study sites in Tennessee. You know, one of them is more central Tennessee, and then one's up in the mountains, kind of close to Knoxville. And then we've got two study sites in Missouri. So we've got a lot of different ecological contexts, landscape contexts, deer densities, soil regions, native plant communities, you name it. We've got a lot of different things represented on our study sites. Um... In turn, what was your what was your second question? Yeah, just laying out that that guideline. So, comparing the two, um, comparing what is regen, and then any of the, the time frame of of this experiment. So, um, the main the main objectives that we're going to be looking at here are fourfold. One of the kind of working from the bottom up. The most foundational thing that we're going to be looking at in this project is how these different treatments, regenerative and conventional, impact the soil. And we're going to be looking at the soil in a couple different ways. Adam, a minute ago you mentioned um, soil organic matter. We're going to be looking at soil organic matter. We're going to be looking at the chemical profile of the soil, so its content of phosphorus and calcium and manganese and copper and zinc and etc., etc. We're also going to be looking at the biological profile of the soil. So how do these various treatments influence the microbial community, the fungal community, the protozoa in the soil? So a lot of different aspects, just looking at the soil. But then the next level, and this is 
starting to get into where most uh, deer hunters and land managers start to really care about this. You know, from my perspective, I don't think a whole lot of traditional, I'm not saying there aren't any deer hunters and land managers that care about soil health, but most of them don't care a whole lot about earthworms. They want to know about the plants and the deer and the turkey that are attracted to those plants. So when we start looking and thinking about the plants, we're also going to be monitoring biomass production in the regenerative and conventional treatments, as well as plant quality. So quantity of plants and quality of plants. So in our regenerative mix, you know, I mentioned that we have in the warm season right now in the regen mix, we've got 19 different species and we've got grasses and we've got forbs and we've got uh, leguminous forms and we've got even some brassicas in there. And I mean, extremely diverse, both in functional groups and just species. In the conventional mix, we've only got two species planted. Those two species in our conventional mix are Alice clover and American joint vetch, or deer vetch. Those two species, Alice clover and deer vetch, are also included in the regenerative mix. So we're going to be looking at the nutritional profiles of those two species between the two different treatments. So, Because it wouldn't be a fair comparison to look at you know the nutritional profile of uh, lab lab in the regenerative mix and deer vetch in the conventional mix. We need to look at the same species in both treatments. So that's kind of the example for the warm season treatments. The cool season treatments are going to have the cool season seed blends will have a whole nother suite of food plot species, but there will be common species between the conventional and the regenerative blends. So when we look at uh, plant quality, we're going to be looking at all of the, you know, conventional uh, macronutrients like crude protein and um, calcium and phosphorus and magnesium and digestibility and fiber, all of that kind of stuff. But we're also going to be looking at some plant secondary compounds. One of the common things you hear when you really start to kind of delve into the regen ag space is that maybe you don't see uh, a measurable difference in crude protein between a regenerative and conventional management approach but maybe you see different levels of plant secondary compounds like antioxidants or flavonoids or carotenoids. You know, a lot of the things, like when you go to the grocery store and you pick up a tomato and you take a bite out of that tomato, but then you go to your garden and pick up a tomato and take a bite out of that one, you can often tell a difference, whether it's visually or taste or whatever, between those tomatoes, whether it's how they were grown or how they were harvested or the soil or the chemicals or whatever. And... Those differences that you're seeing or tasting in that tomato are largely from plant secondary compounds. So the thought is that if, you know, there's pretty good evidence when you look in the literature that management can, management practices, whether it be tillage or herbicide or fertilizer or whatever, that management can influence concentration or the presence of certain plant secondary compounds. And, you know, we're not sitting here and pretending that we know which uh, nutrients deer are going to be selecting. We know that deer tend to select foods that are higher in crude protein, that are more digestible, that are higher in some of these nutrients. We know they tend to avoid plants when they're really high in something like sulfur in some cases. And, you know, but with plant secondary compounds, there's very little literature out there to kind of give us an indication of, you know, antioxidants or flavonoids or carotenoids or, you know, some of these more complex 
molecular molecular compounds. But we are going to be looking at those and the common species between our food plot treatments. Um, so we touched on the soil, we touched on the plants. The next one, and I think this is probably going to be one of, if not the biggest, um, questions that I think will pertain to most hunters and land managers, it's uh, animal use. So we got trail cameras in every one of our food plot treatments on all of our study sites. And, you know, the, and this is probably the simplest objective that we have in this entire project. There's no complicated analyses here. There's no complicated measurements. It's just, were there more pictures of deer feeding in a conventional food plot or in a regenerative food plot? Were there more pictures of turkeys bugging around in a conventional food plot or a regenerative food plot? And one thing that I uh, forgot to point out a minute ago, all of our treatments are literally side by side. They're in the same field. So we went on to our study sites. We isolated, you know, a five to ten acre field, and we split it up into five different food plot treatments. And we can get into what all of those are later if you want to. But we basically split it up into five different treatments and randomly selected which of those little one to two acre plots was going to be a regenerative treatment or a conventional treatment. So these are all side by side. When a deer walks into that food plot, that deer essentially has free choice whether it goes to the regenerative plot or the conventional plot. It's not like, you know, the conventional plot is going to be adjacent to cover, but the regenerative food plot is 300 yards farther away, so deer have to walk through the conventional plot first. They're all completely side by side. So um, with that, we're going to be measuring deer and turkey use of the food plots. And then the last one um, is economics. How do these different management approaches and the equipment that you need to implement the different management approaches, how does that affect your pocketbook? So I think one of the simplest ways to think about that is um, how much monetary investment, how much time investment, how much equipment investment do I need to get X amount of biomass production or X amount of crude protein, pounds of crude protein in the plot or X number of deer using the plot per day. Because, you know, we can sit down and come up with, you know, all of these numbers on deer use and turkey use and biomass and crude protein and plant nutrient density and soil health. But at the end of the day, what we are going to be able to provide to landowners and hunters is, hey, this is what we documented on these study sites over the last three or four years, and this is what it cost. Some landowners and hunters are going to be able to afford the, you know, sometimes big startup investment required to do some of these different treatments, but some won't. And so it'll kind of provide a good reference point for, um, you know, land managers as they begin to think about what their objectives are and what they want out of their food plotting program and how much it's going to cost them to get there. Hmm. Bronson, you got anything to add? Yeah, I would add in on the economics, Luke. Uh, everything you said exactly, precisely correct. We're also going to be looking at it in a, in a forecasting framework as well. So in a particular year, this is what regen costs versus what the conventional costs. But then also it's like, okay, uh, a barrier for a lot of people, rightfully so, is you got to have a drill. In most cases, you're going to need a seed drill. And that can be an economic barrier. But what we also want to do is, just just like a producer would do, 
is forecasting five years down the road or 10 years down the road, you did have some startup costs, maybe with one of the techniques, but maybe you make that back with the lack of inputs. So it's going to be literally working with an economist at some scale to make sure we are fairly evaluating both of these approaches within a particular year and over time. Great, great points. Talk to me a little bit about the 12-month calendar between the two. So let's go into the conventional first. And what does that look like? What's the prep time in the spring? Um, what are you doing? What's the first thing you're doing in the, in the spring for this conventional um, plot? When are you planting? What's the return maintenance? Then what are you planting in the fall? Any other work that may be included in that 12-month calendar year? Okay. So I think it'll help at this point to kind of go over roughly the different treatments we've got going on here because some treatments get different things at different times. So very, I'm going to try to keep this as simple as possible. Very basically, we've got two regenerative treatments, and one of those we're calling kind of our purest treatment. And that one... Uh, we are not using a drop of herbicide, not a granule of fertilizer on that thing, not a single rotation of a disc blade for the entire duration of this project. Because that is, you know, like you kind of alluded to earlier, people have got all sorts of definitions for what regenerative food plotting is, what regenerative agriculture is. And so we're kind of trying to tailor to different parts of the spectrum here. So one of them is not going to include any of that ever. We've also got a regenerative treatment that is going to include at least herbicide as necessary. Because sometimes, as I'm sure you're very aware, you go to plant and you've got a carpet of vasi grass or Bermuda. And it's like, well, this plot is more or less destined to fail in terms of <laughs> establishment success of the species that I plant. Right? There yeah. are different ways to evaluate success here. But if you're evaluating success based on did the seeds that I plant come up out of the ground and persist and feed deer throughout the growing season, when you plant into a mat of perennial warm or cool season grass or a number of other species, you're likely not going to have very good establishment success there. So we've got the purest treatment that doesn't use any herbicide, and then we've got another regen treatment where we're going to use herbicides as necessary with a priority on producing deer food in that treatment. So those are the two regen treatments. The conventional treatments are going to include one uh, treatment that is warm season only. So we're going to plant the warm season food plot, and then it is going to be fallow throughout the cool season, and then we'll replant it again the following warm season. And then we've got another, another conventional treatment that's going to be cool season only. So that one will be planted in the late summer, early fall, and it will you know be producing forage throughout the fall, winter, early spring, and then it's going to be starting to peter out. You know, we're going to have red clover in that mix, and I'll get into more of the details in a minute. But it's going to be starting to peter out by mid to late summer. And then we're going to go ahead and plant it again the following cool season. We've got another conventional treatment that we're going to, pl we're going to uh, plant in the fall with, you know, a pretty typical cool season mix with uh, cereal grain and a couple clovers. And then once we get to the following springtime, we're going to no-till top sow our warm season conventional mix on top of that. 
So one of the conventional treatments, warm season only. Another one is cool season only. And then the third is warm and cool season on the same acreage. So that's kind of the general outline of these treatments. Did that make sense? Cover everything there? Okay. Yeah. So in terms of timing of things, for our, we'll just start with the conventional warm season treatment. So, you know, three weeks, about three weeks before we plant the conventional warm season treatment, we go in and burn down whatever existing vegetation is there with two quarts per acre of glyphosate. Okay. Three weeks after that happens, we go in and uh, spread all of our soil amendments, lime, fertilizer, whatever it is, as, and we're amending soil based on soil tests for every individual plot. We're not like taking a soil sample for the entire 10 acre field and making a soil amendment based on that. Like different conventional treatments will receive different soil amendments if the soil test calls for it, and up to twice a year. So we use a burn-down herbicide application of glyphosate at two quarts per acre three weeks prior to planting, and then three weeks after that herbicide application, we come in, apply all of our lime and fertilizer, uh, disc that into the soil to incorporate it, and then we are planting everything with a no-till drill, but we're unhooking the drop tubes on it, so we're basically broadcasting it, right? We're not drilling it into the disc ground. We're just drop seeding it from the drill, mainly just so we can control seeding rates more precisely. And then we're cultipacking on top of that, and then once we cultipack, we're using a pre-emergence herbicide application of Pursuit, because the species we're planting in our conventional mix are Alice Clover and deer vetch and that pursuit application is just to control incoming weeds and a lot of incoming warm season grasses that we don't want um and that is all that is required of the conventional warm season treatment now we're using herbicides to maintain that treatment as necessary and as you can imagine we need to on we've needed to on every study site so far but it's possible we'd have a year where rainfall is perfect and plant timing was perfect where you didn't need any herbicide applications other than your initial pre-emergence application so and then that we're just riding that out until you know uh the first frost and once the first frost hits it's going to wipe out that deer vetch and alice clover and that plot is going to sit fallow until the following spring when we uh, burn down whatever weeds are starting to pop back up. We apply soil amendments again, and we disc them in and replant. So that's kind of our conventional warm season treatment. The conventional cool season is basically the same exact thing, except it's planted in obviously the late summer, early fall versus in the springtime. Um, the regenerative treatment timelines are going to uh, very closely follow what I just outlined for the conventional but obviously the way we're managing the seedbed is very different. The way we're managing existing vegetation we're planting into is very different, and planting technique is a little different. So with the regenerative treatments, in the, in the purest treatment, we are very simply roller crimping on top of you know the standing biomass and, pl- and drilling, no-till drilling, directly into the biomass, the standing biomass from the previous season's food plot. So, for example, uh, here in about a month, month and a half, I will go in to the regen treatment and crimp terminate, or, you know, crimp, it's not going to terminate a lot of the species that are in there, but I will crimp down 
the standing biomass that I had planted four months ago in the springtime. And then once that's crimped down, I'm going to drill the cool season mix directly into that. And then that is literally going to be the only maintenance that that plot gets. It's going to be the only only thing that that plot gets until next spring when I crimp down the standing biomass from this upcoming cool season and drill in the incoming warm season blend. Very cool. And so that's, that's pretty well across the board for the regen plots. There was some variance in in the conventional with using some herbicide or some but in in regen it's pretty much across the board the same species being planted in the spring and the same species being planted in the fall yep same species are going to be planted in both of the regenerative treatments Mm -hmm. um obviously our warm season and cool season blend are different but the same Mm -hmm. species are planted in the regen treatments the only potential difference is that we may as needed we're you know in the regen treatment where we are allowing some herbicide we're not you know, going out there and just haphazardly spraying glyphosate like every chance we get. We are doing our best to follow the principles of regenerative agriculture, which say that you reduce or eliminate, you know, herbicide application as much as possible. So we're going to follow that as much as we can. But for example, if, you know, if you've got a really bad weed problem, especially perennial weeds, in that regen treatment where we are using herbicides, we will go down, we will go in there and burn down the existing weed problem before we plant the incoming crop just to um, give that planting as much a chance for success as possible. And the data will bear out whether or not that's justified from a soil perspective, from a um, plant quality and biomass perspective, and ultimately from a critter attraction perspective. Yeah. One awesome. um, one quick anecdote, and I'm going to preface this by saying this is completely anecdotal. It is based on one thing that I did one time. Okay. Okay. I can't wait. And, yeah, there will. I, I think that if I had to predict, I would say that uh, over the next few years we will see this thing that I'm about to talk about happen more and more. But mm-hmm. this is one of the reasons why we decided to incorporate. A regen treatment where we could use herbicides sparingly as necessary. Okay, so here's a scenario. On, on one of our study sites, we implemented the regen treatment where we drilled directly into the biomass that was there previously. We crimped over top of it and then we drilled into it, right? What, what was that? Pause for one second. What was that that you were drilling in? At the beginning of this, you were, you were terminating something. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't fall crop, it wasn't cover crop, you know, like like some guys they're they'll start this out and they're already in a food plot program. What was your site like? So this well, it's extremely variable across study sites. You know, we've got nine okay. study sites and if you name a scenario that someone could plan into, it was represented on one of our study sites. Very very cool. very extremely variable. So some of them were uh were ag fields that had been planted last fall in a cover crop mix, like in, okay. a, in a fairly diverse cover crop mix. So some of the sites had um, standing wheat, oats, uh, some brassicas, arrowleaf clover, Austrian winter peas, you know, like all sorts of stuff like that. And we 
quite successfully got a really good regenerative plot established in those right off the bat. Because we were planting into species that were A, annuals, right? And they were petering out right at the time that we were planting into them. And, uh, well, that's, I think, the main reason. So, on the other hand, we've got some study sites that they had, God forbid, a bunch of ryegrass in there. Or they had a bunch of fescue. Or they had a bunch of, you know, uh, bahia grass that was just starting to sprout back. Or they had a bunch, I mean, you name it, we planted into it. So, on the on the study site that I'm about to share this anecdote about, the regen plot was uh, planted into um, standing almost a solid stand of ryegrass, annual ryegrass. Okay, so I crimped over top of it, but it didn't get a great kill just because it's ryegrass. It doesn't have that thick stem like a lot of the cereals do. It just doesn't crimp as crimp terminate as well as you would like to see with other cereal grains. So crimped over it, drilled into that ryegrass, and initially that uh, that stand came up really nicely. We got good germination. There was all sorts of good stuff popping up all over the place. But very quickly, because that ryegrass did not really terminate and because there were other, you know, weeds kind of, you know, germinating around the same time that we planted, that plot was very quickly smothered by everything else around it. And now it's it's hard to go out there and find something that we planted. Like, it's genuinely mm. difficult. Yeah. Now, we had some extra seed left over, you know, after we had planted that study site. I had about an acre's worth of seed left over. And within three days of planting the one that I planted into ryegrass, I went right next door, the adjacent food plot, same property, 200 yards away. And I burned down the, uh, the standing biomass that was there previously, same species that were in the other one. There was the ryegrass and some other cool season weeds and a few incoming warm season weeds. Burned that down with glyphosate and then drilled into um, all of that stuff that I just killed with herbicide the establishment success between those two plots was very different the one that I burned down first is looking great and the one that I didn't burn down first and only crimped was looking a lot rougher and I think a lot of that is because I or we controlled the competition I think it's almost as simple as that so I say that just to kind of you know lead in to why we included a treatment where we could use herbicides sparingly. Because I think sometimes if, if your objective is providing deer food, deer with food, then you need to control competition at some level. But if your objective is, you know, soil health, um, then that might not be the way to go. But we wanted to address both kind of schools of thought there. Are you... Now, somehow monitoring weed competition as far as you know i I think you said that you're monitoring um, forage produced in these areas are you monitoring you know the amount of weed um okay you're shaking his head yes at me amount uh, because i just see that you know completely going cold turkey on herbicide sounds like we're going to see weeds increase and so i'm curious at what level you guys are monitoring that to to share that research yeah so we are looking at that in two different ways. One way is just with exclusion cages, right? So we have exclusion cages out, and we clip a bunch of the vegetation inside that exclusion cage, and then we uh, sort and weigh out 
everything that's at, in that exclusion cage by species. And we basically group it into, is it something that we planted or is it something else? If it's something else, we call it a weed, right? And so mm-hmm. we're going to have a biomass estimate, like pounds per acre of weed coverage based on that. We're also using, and you know, try to avoid getting too sciencey here, but we're also using point intersect transects. So basically, we stretch out a measuring tape, and every meter, we identify and measure everything that's growing at that exact point. So I'll say, you know, stretch out that tape, and I'll be like, okay, at this point, we've got soybean, we've got okra, and we've got deer vetch. At this point, we've got vasey grass, we've got sun hemp, and we've got, you know what I mean? So you can kind of get a percent coverage across the plot of weeds that way but you can also get the biomass estimate of the weeds by looking at the exclusion cages i'm interested to hear you guys said you said you planted okra i planted okra a couple of years ago and uh, i was really excited about it you know okra it seems like in the heat okra is just like born for it um i had no idea how much deer liked okra when i planted it and yep. it was just like in some plots i had tons of okra and other plots it was just like i had these big stalks that were just browsed off looked like you hit them with a bush hog and it was deer eating it yep so yeah that's very cool you guys had that in there what are some of the other you know you said you had 19 species what are some of the you know everybody by this point hopefully in 2023 are aware of some of the most common summer forages but 19 is hard to list off mm-hmm. usually we can get six to eight so what are some of the other ones that are are in those summer blends we've got uh, a couple different varieties of millet we've got you know your classic cowpea and a few other legumes soybeans um we've got a couple different brassicas we've got corn we've got okra we've got you know deer vetch and alice clover like i talked about that are included in the conventional blend we've got i mean all sorts of stuff mm. and the you know the main objective from a soil health or or regenerative ag perspective the oftentimes the main objective is not maximizing tonnage of deer food right obviously you got to have some amount of deer food there or it's not going to be a food plot and it's not going to attract critters but you know including you know the millets you know deer will eat you know millet seeds or seed heads once they mature in a month or two from now but you know, deer aren't eating the foliage of millet or corn or whatever during the growing season unless they're absolutely starving. The point yeah. of those plants is that they are, you know, the idea is that they are contributing unique things to the soil microbial environment. So they're photosynthesizing, releasing unique compounds into the soil, attracting uh, and promoting unique species of microbes. And when you have different species of plants in your food plot, they're interacting in different ways with the soil and you get this kind of synergy that starts to build and kind of trickle upwards into the plants yeah i imagine in a in a in a plot that has had herbicide termination and if you have 19 species and you've got millets and is sedan grass in there nope no sedan nope. grass milo nope you haven't no milo no milo i just imagine with sun hemp and Sedan or in and the millets and you said cowpeas. What about lab lab? Lab lab. lab, lab. Yeah, it's just a jungle. I planted a a mix of sun hemp and it was like a nine way blend a couple years ago and timing was great. Good 
good herbicide kill and it was it almost reminded me of kudzu patch down south it was just vines stuff everywhere it was incredible um we dealt with some weeds the next year and so we had to address it but it was an incredible summer there for sure so as far as oh go ahead well let me ask you a question when you have encountered weeds it sounds like year two year three on the plots where you've been kind of doing this regen stuff that's when you really start to run into some weed problems how have you addressed that in these plots um it's a that's the question um where i'm at when it comes to the regen i'm very intrigued you know trying to plant diverse blends especially in areas of of high deer activity because like typically i'd like to go as a deer hunter i dream of the day of standing over it's november and i've got a stand of standing soybeans or standing corn up there and uh it's just beautiful but if i'm in an area of high deer density i'm going well good luck getting the beans to make pods um so typically for for us the way we have addressed that has gone from if we go a year of a blend two blends so a blend during the summer and a blend during the fall then the next year if we noticed our common ones in the ozarks is is goose grass and crabgrass and cerisa lespediza i don't worry about ragweed or mare's tail they're there but i don't worry about them deer eating them but those three if i start seeing them then we convert to a monoculture of soybeans or corn and use glyphosate that year or we convert to clover and try to use like an imox or a a Mm -hmm. grass specific herbicide and do that for you know if it's a monoculture do that one growing season and then convert back yep but that's why essentially rotating to control weed problems it's like conventional for a year regen for a couple of years then have to go back to conventional not the tillage conventional Mm -hmm. for me would be on on our farm and the way we use conventional if you will is is it's uh it's no-till drilling in a summer crop but killing with a, gly- a burn down with glyphosate right before that and then maybe a burn down with glyphosate during the growing season um, if it's monoculture then doing diverse diverse blend um, that's kind of for me is so your research is intriguing because it's like what can we learn from the region food plots as far as forage produced as for as far as deer act and turkey activity but then what can we also learn about weed control mm-hmm. or weed abundance and then how do we how do we walk that line if you will of going i want improved soil health i want lower inputs but i also want less weeds and and attractiveness for deer and turkey i think that's everybody's idea yeah. or goal it's a golden ticket yeah and 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 so regen why i'm so excited and i want everybody to hear about this research is because there's not a lot of in fact i don't think there's any where you can go from the region agriculture side where there's all these universities who have studied um regenerative agriculture and uh, cereal rye and hairy vetch and they're crimping it over and it's big huge fields they're not talking about deer browse pressure they're not talking Mm -hmm. about um, uneven ground where there's stumps or whatever they're not talking about poor ground they're talking about crop field where at the end of the day crop has to be produced to make income and for us 
we really just want to shoot deer yep. and turkeys out of it. <clears throat> and that's why this is like, when I heard about it, um, is like every time I turn around, somebody who's got connection to the university, you guys, it's like a turnaround. They're like, oh, I just can't wait. I can't wait to hear what they find out. It's like that's that's what's exciting for me. What about you guys? Let me ask you, Bronson. Like, is that, are you kind of in the same boat, or or you know what was intriguing in this for you? Um, gosh, that's a that's a pretty deep question. Um, I I think just for me, understanding the, let me back up, attempting to understand the soil ecology and biology and learning about these relationships to where the microbial community shares nutrients with plants was uh, that that was when the the light bulb went off for me and so it's kind of very very similar to a relationship with a legume everybody's familiar with you know you inoculate inoculate the rhizobia bacteria they have a, a symbiosis you know they're they're providing uh, nitrogen to the plant. The plant's providing carbohydrates to the bacteria, and so they help each other. But what we're learning there's a lot more of those relationships than just with legumes. And so once you get the microbes there and the the, the bacteria and the fungus and all that working in concert, that is historically how the soil has provided nutrients to plants o- over the ages, over the eons, you know. the Adding synthetic fertilizers is post-World War II. So there were a lot of other ways people had productive crops, forests, etc. Uh, understanding that, understanding a term, what is it, Luke? Uh, microbial quorum? Yep where you have to reach a threshold in the abundance and diversity of microbes. And when you reach that threshold, they essentially say, okay, we're going to start sharing. We're going to be able to get something from the plant, and in return, we're going to provide you phosphorus. We're going to provide you calcium. And that's really the the foundation of the multi-species blend. Never tilling, never adding disruptors tillage and herbicide and stuff, they're, they're disruptors to that community. Uh, the diversification of all these different species and having roots in the ground and the exudates provided by those roots, that is what feeds that community. And so this whole process is just restoring that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that to me, uh, I honestly, five years ago, three years ago, I didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. I really thought the whole regenerative ag was just really about tillage. Mm. I thought it was just, or, let's build some organic matter. Yeah, it, It's a lot more than that. Organic matter, of, go- of course, is a beneficial byproduct. And the soil moisture, uh, reducing the fluctuations in soil temperature. I mean, all these things are really, really good. But but whether you get that community underground ecologically working in a year or two or five or six, that's going to depend on the site. That's going to depend on the history, et cetera. But I think that's been the most intriguing thing for me, Adam, is, uh, and I still don't understand it fully. It's really, really complex, and I never will. Uh, but, but that's been very enlightening to me is at least I think now Luke and I, we know what we're chasing. <laughs> we yeah. know what we're, we're trying to do. 
and just restore that. Yeah. So th- that's kind of the soil health aspect of it has been very interesting. I think, I, I mean, that is, I, I, years ago I did a video, I helped with the production side with a, um, a company that had Ray Archuleta, um, who's really well known in that soil world. Yeah. Um, and so I got to spend a good amount of time with him and, and it was just like listening to him speak about even five years ago and 10 years ago and then now current you know this was four or five years ago present day going like and i had him on our podcast a couple years ago it was like seems like once you go you know above ground it's very hard to understand sometimes like you know we we have a fairly good understanding of it by now but then you go underground and it's just like it's a whole like we're so far behind on understanding that in comparison to above ground and it's like what you're talking about is you got to get to a place where there is this transferring of nutrients from one plant to the other is like oh that sounds incredible but the curveball to that in my opinion has always been can we get there before the weeds take over and and now we have to address those and i think that's where it's like to me that might be the biggest the biggest challenge in this for everyone is like we all want to get there but how do we do it without being covered up in crabgrass or covered up in ryegrass or mm-hmm. you name it cerisa lespedeza how do we get there and, and that is that that's going to be uh that, that's some things luke and i've talked about and others is you're going to have to be very, very clear about what your objective is. You're going to have to be very clear on if you're wanting a response in year two or three yep. or year seven and eight. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have to really understand what your limiting factors are for your deer population. Yeah. And again, I, I'm not predicting this is going to happen, but Luke and I went through this the other day, and we're actually discussing this with Fred Provenza. Mm. Um you, you can have a scenario where we say in five years that, hey, this stuff works. This is fantastic. We restored the soil ecology. Soil health is better. The deer are attracted to this regen, regen ag plots more than the conventional. But what if your limiting factor on that property is crude protein? You could very well turn right around and say, you know, I already am managing my habitat sufficiently. I already essentially have a prairie diversity of of plants. So plant diversity is not a problem at all. But what is limiting is diet quality is far below 16% crude protein. And I want to put in, you know, 7,000 pounds per acre of forage soybeans. That's going to address the limiting factor for that property. You can turn right around and do the reverse if I'm in the Midwest in a sea of agriculture, crude protein may not be the limiting factor. It could be plant diversity. Yeah. It could be the micros that are in all those other plants that are the limiting factor. So I don't think we're going to get at the end of this road and have a champion yeah. at all. I think we're going to better understand uh, what we can expect over a five-year time frame, and then we're going to be able to monitor how the deer responded to it. Mm-hmm. That, that's yeah. really the best we can hope for. Luke, you mentioned something. And I'm curious when we're talking about different macro and micro nutrients, but you're also talking about, I'm assuming, taking forage samples. But a couple of years ago, uh, brother and I, when we bought our farm, we bought some cows. And just trying to notice 
forage foraging techniques if you will or foraging selection is a better term of those cows it was the same species from here to there but they've really selected it here but didn't select it over there and it kind of led me into a, what causes that and one of the common things in discussions with other people was bricks levels or the mm-hmm. levels of those sugars in those plants are you are is there any kind of studying of of that in those in your um system or in your well, research so we're not looking at that as part of everything i described but we are planning to look at that under a more like experimental approach like almost in a greenhouse where we can control everything we can control Mm -hmm. the amount of sunlight we can measure bricks at 6 a.m noon 6 p.m midnight we want to kind of look at that in different ways but it's not going to be like you know us out on all of our study sites clipping samples and squeezing juices into a bricks bricks meter (laughs) well i bought one of those things and was out there with a little press and was like how stupid do I look right now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> because I was trying to journal down, like, okay, I took it at, at this time of the year, on this day, at this time this time of the day. It was just like, wow. And I haven't found, the reason I asked that question is I haven't really seen good research on food plot varieties. Because then it led into the question of people talking about raising those bricks levels, you get less pest um Mm-hmm. involvement and uh, in, 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 um, consumption from those pests on that. And it was just like, well, that's really interesting. I wonder if that creates more selection from the deer similar to what the cows are doing. And uh, anyway, so, yeah, you, you've uncorked a can of worms right here with this with this project. I'm sure it's going to be ever, ever changing and always happening um, once we yeah. go down this path. We, we certainly hope to have answers or at least pretend that we have answers to most of these questions by the time it's all said and done. But I, you know, totally foresee probably what's the most likely scenario where we get to the end of this and we can, there are some general things we can say, but it ends up being such a nuanced, well, it depends on your landscape context and it depends on your starting point. It depends on, I mean, the list goes on and on. So I really think it's, it's going to open up, not to say that we're not going to have answers to a lot of these questions, because I think we will, but I think it's going to uncover a lot more questions than we even know exist right now. Yeah. I was going to say, you're going to get to the end of this, and we're going to get the classic answer always. It depends. Yep. To everyone that, to the point where they just get irritated asking questions, because they know they're going to get that answer. Yeah. Prepare yourself. <laughs> yeah. That is going to happen. Yeah. 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 And the other side of that is we're going to say we don't know. Yeah. Well, why did the deer behave that we don't know? Yeah. It's very, very complicated. We can't isolate the mechanism that caused that. But here's what what we can tell you: yeah, we measured this, and here's how the deer responded. Yeah. Yeah. Or it cost this much for that type of system, and this much for that type of system. Yep. And, yeah. Right. And I think that right there is just good for everyone to know because deer hunters are quick to throw money and not even realize just how much it costs it's kind of like a buddy of mine um when i was growing up he was one of the biggest tightwads in the world and he used to chew and one day we were going down the road and he bought some more um chew and and i said how much does that cost and he told me and i'm like how much do you chew in a week and he told me and i'm like how many t-? and i punched him and i said you realize you spend that much amount of that much money in a month on chew 
And he was like, whoa. And shortly in 12 months, he was done chewing. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those with this process. Who knows? People may not even realize how much they spend on food plots, and they may be able to change up some management to save themselves some money. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, I appreciate you coming on. And um, I can't wait to, you know, this is something that every year I'm going to have to have you come back on and share any updates, any more observations you're making as this project moves forward. And I'm looking forward to it, and I know everybody else is. So thank you. Yeah, thank you Absolutely. for having us on. And I want to say. Hey, we can't wait either. I wish we could fast forward five years. You know, we, we me too. all want the answers, <laughs> especially you, Luke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No doubt. Uh, how do people follow along? I know uh, MSU Deer Lab. You've you've made some posts on Facebook and social media, correct? Mm-hmm, Is that yeah. the best way for people to follow along and see some of this unveiled? Yeah, certainly. We'll we'll put some stuff out there, and you know we we have to also qualify. You know, Luke and I, we got to be very careful because we got to wait till the end. Yep. Uh, we got to wait until the data are analyzed. We got to wait for the you know the peer scrutiny. You know, in terms of the peer review process, we don't yep. want to lead people down uh, the wrong road. But uh, certainly, little nuggets or interesting things we're seeing, we're we're going to put there. Uh, we'll we'll talk about it some as well on our Dear University podcast as well, and then happy to come on here again. Yep, uh, in the near future, sure. Always welcome. Yep, and and also you know uh, MSU Deer Lab podcast. I'm sure everybody's listening by now on on our that follow along here. So I'm sure you guys will share more about that over there. So guys, absolutely. Um, I encourage you to follow along to what these guys are doing. And, and Bronson and Luke, thanks for coming on, guys. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you on soon. Thank you for having All us. All right. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yep.